Hey, everybody, my name is Clay. I'm one of the pastors here, and uh, it's really good to see you guys here this morning. Thanks for coming out and uh, for being willing to spend uh, part of your weekend here with us. And if today is your first time here, uh, I would love to meet you after the service, even if today isn't your first time here. If we haven't met each other, I usually hang out up front, and I'd love to spend a couple of minutes uh, just getting to know you a little bit better and uh, finding out what's going on in your life. So I was thinking earlier this summer, I've actually been in the Summit area now for eight years. I had lived uh, in the Princeton area for about 25 years before that. So, uh, you know, we're catching up. And uh, if I live to be about 120, maybe I'll be in Summit a little bit longer than, uh, than I was down there in Princeton. But one of the things that impressed me about eight years or so ago when I first moved here is that you guys are actually willing to pay people to tell you that you stink at doing things, that like you can't hit a golf ball to save your life, or that your kid does not know how to kick a soccer ball with her left foot. She's okay with her right foot, but she's not so good with her left foot, or he's not ready to take his SATs, or you hire a life coach because your life is messed up and you want someone to tell you, to confirm that your life is messed up, and that's why you hire a life coach, you know, and I was, I'm, I'm impressed with that because we actually pay people to tell us that we don't do things very well. When I first got here, I realized that I wanted to learn how to play golf better than I could play golf uh, when I arrived, and a few of you who had the privilege or the lack of privilege to get to play with me, realized, yes, in fact, you needed some lessons, Clay. So I went and I took some lessons. So I get to the lesson and the guy seems friendly enough, but within about five minutes, he's pointing out everything that I'm doing wrong. You're holding the club wrong. You're standing wrong. You're standing too close to the ball. Now you're standing too far away from the ball. Instead of rotating your hips, you're sliding your hips. You know, and hey, don't quit your day job because you're never going to be a professional golfer. And I'm feeling like, okay, what's going on here? Actually, I loved it. I didn't hire him to be a cheerleader. I hired him to be a coach because I knew my golf game needed some improvement. And I wanted somebody to point out my flaws because if I didn't have somebody telling me where I was falling short, where I wasn't doing well, in terms of being a golfer, there was no way that I was going to improve. And so I was glad that he was going to do that for me. And it's a little bit different, but I think in some sense, we come to church, at least in part, because we realize we've got some room for growth in our spiritual lives. And that may look different for, for different people. For some of us, we realize that our relationship with God really isn't the way that we know it ought to be. And for other people, others of us, maybe it's because we feel like our relationships with other people aren't the way that they ought to be. Or some of us are feeling guilty and we want to deal with that guilt or we've got some bad habits that we're trying to overcome. And so we're looking for some advice. We're looking for some tips. We're looking for some encouragement. And in fact, if we're honest with ourselves, we are looking for somebody to point out to us, maybe in a very gentle way, where we're falling short, and to give us some advice as to how we can do better in our spiritual lives. And this morning, I want to look at a passage in a letter that Jesus' best friend, when he was on earth, wrote to a bunch of Christians. His name is John, 
and you may know him as the author of the Gospel of John, the fourth book in the New Testament. He actually also wrote three letters to different Christians around the area where he lived, and there, we know them as 1 John, 2 John, and 3 John, very creative titles. I'm sure John didn't come up with those. The editors who put the Bible together came up with them in that way. But 1 John is one of my favorite books in the Bible because it's so unbelievably practical, and it melds uh, some practical advice with some very uh, heart-piercing truths that are sometimes a little bit hard to understand. And even in those cases when we do understand, they're sometimes a little bit hard to take. But just in the same way as I was glad when my golf instructor was explaining to me what I was doing wrong, I'm glad when the Apostle John explains to me the things that I'm doing wrong as well. So I'm appreciative of that. And it's been really helpful to me in growing in my relationship with God. So I thought I'd take a few minutes this morning and share with you from 1 John chapter 1. John writes, he says, This is the message we've heard from him and we declare to you. God is light, and in him there is no darkness at all. If we claim to have fellowship with him and yet walk in the darkness, we lie and we don't live out the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, purifies us from all sin. And if you've ever read the Gospel of John or if you've ever read any of the letters that John has written, you realize that he loves to use imagery that at first is a little bit challenging for us to understand. And most people, when they read this statement that John says in verse 7, God is light and in him there is no darkness at all, most people read that and see it as John is referring to God's moral purity, God's goodness. He's light, he's pure, he's good, there's no darkness, there's no evil in him. He's morally perfect. And so when he makes this contrast between light and darkness, he's making a contrast between good and evil. And he's saying if we want to have fellowship with God, if we want to have a close relationship with God, not just sort of an intellectual assent to a bunch of truths, not just a head knowledge of who God is, but if we really want to know God, if we really want to have a relationship with him, if we want to be close to God, We need to walk in the light. We need to live good, upright, pure, holy, righteous, whatever positive term you want to to, to use. We need to live that kind of life. We need to be good, moral people if we want to have a relationship with God. We need to be good. We need to avoid sin. And that's the message. That's the message that is preached in thousands of churches all over the world every Sunday morning. God is light. In him there is no darkness. You got to be good. And if you want to have a relationship with God, then you have to be good like God is good. The only way that I'm going to have a good relationship with him is to be morally perfect. And then the only way that I'm going to be right with him is to be like him but there's a problem there. I'm not a perfect golfer. I'm not a perfect moral person. I do things wrong. I sin. I fall short. I don't live up to the standard. And so if the standard is God's moral perfection, if the standard is is being good in everything I say, everything I do, everything I think, 
then I'm in a heap of trouble because realistically speaking, no matter how hard I try, I can't live up to that standard. And so if that's the standard, if walking in the light means living a perfect, upright, good, moral life, realistically speaking, I don't think I have the hope of being able to do that. So what am I supposed to do? What am I supposed to do about that? And, and thousands, tens of thousands of people all over the world live with that guilt, with that shame, with that feeling of I'm not good enough because I can't meet the standard. In fact, not only can I not meet the standard that God has for me, I can't even meet the standard that I have for myself. And I don't like to admit that to other people. But realistically speaking, no matter what the standard is, I don't seem to measure up to it. So what am I supposed to do in that situation? If we keep reading in John's letter, I think he, he at least begins to give us a bit of an answer. Verse 8, he says, If we claim to be without sin... We deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sins, he's faithful, he's just, he'll forgive us our sins, he'll purify us from all unrighteousness. If we claim we haven't sinned, we make him out to be a liar and his word is not in us. And I look at this and probably the first 10, 15, 20 times I read this, I felt like there was this contradiction that was going on here. Earlier, verse 6, John is saying, if we walk in the darkness... We lie. We don't practice the truth. If I sin, I've got a serious problem here. But then on the other hand, here in verse 8, he says, if I claim I don't sin, then I'm in trouble as well. So whether I do or I don't, whatever I do, I'm in trouble because I can't meet the standard. But if I say that I actually do meet the standard, then I'm lying. And so I'm caught in a really difficult situation. So which is it? Verses 8 and verse 10 fit a lot better with the reality of my life. I fall short. I sin. I do things wrong. I don't live up to the standard. Yet verse 6 tells me that if I'm going to be right with God, I've got to live a morally pure life. So I'm in, a, in an impossible situation. So what do I do? I do the same thing that I do with my golf game. I lower the standard. I figure I'm never going to play on the PGA Tour. And if you've ever played golf with me, you say you're not even going to get close to the PGA Tour, right? So I just want to break 90. Or if I'm doing a little bit better, I just want to break 80. Or if I'm really good, I just want to break 70. And if I've got this really challenging goal, I just want to shoot my age. So maybe if I live to be 110, 120, I'll be able to shoot my age someday, you know? And so I lower the standard and I come up with this dumbed down, lowered standard where if I'm pretty good, then... I'm okay. Maybe I haven't murdered anybody. Yeah, okay, I've hated people in my heart, and there's these difficult, problematic verses over in the Gospel of Matthew where he says, if you hate somebody in your heart, it's like you've murdered them in your heart. But I'll kind of ignore those for a time or say, well, maybe that's hyperbole. Maybe he's exaggerating, and he doesn't really mean that. And so I kind of lower the standard, and I say, if I'm good enough then God will accept me. If I'm more good than I am bad, then I'll be okay with God, or at least if I'm better than the average person. So I set this standard for myself, and yet even that lowered, dumbed-down, reduced standard, if I'm honest with myself, I don't always meet it. And if you question that, if you're not sure you agree with that, 
just keep a record of everything you criticize somebody else for for an entire week. Just write it down or hang a tape recorder around your neck. Keep track of everything that you, uh, that you criticize somebody else for. And at the end of the week, just evaluate yourself against those things that you criticized other people for. And you'll realize, you know what? I don't even live up to my own standard. And so what am I going to do in that situation? And that leads to what I think is a better way of looking at this light and darkness imagery that John uses here in 1 John chapter 1. Rather than primarily referring to good and evil, I think that when John uses this light and darkness imagery, he's actually referring to revealing versus concealing or showing versus hiding. Because at, at, at a fundamental sense, when you turn on the lights, you can see things. When you're in darkness, you can't see things. And yes, it's true that light does typically in the Bible refer to, to, to good, and darkness does refer to evil, and I think there is some of that in there. But I think in this passage, John is primarily referring to revealing versus concealing, to showing versus hiding. John is essentially saying, we need to come to Christ, we need to come to Jesus, we need to come to God and let him shine his light on us and show us where we fall short. Show us where we're not living up to the standard. It's like me going to my golf instructor and saying to him, show me where my swing is messed up. I need to know where I messed up because if I don't, if I'm ignorant, if I don't understand it, then I've got no hope of improving my golf game. And so similarly in our relationship with God, he can show us the standard, he can show us where we fall short because if we're honest with ourselves, we're all self-deceived. We all think that we're a little bit or a lot better than we actually are. And we need somebody to show us our flaws, to point out our, our shortcomings to us. Otherwise, we're never gonna have the opportunity to improve. If I let God show me my sin, I'm in much better position to be able to deal with it than if I'm oblivious to what I'm doing wrong. If I know where I'm falling short, then hopefully I can work on it and hopefully I can improve. But that still leaves us with the question, how good is good enough? How good do I have to be in order for God to accept me? Think about it outside of the, uh, of the spiritual realm. How good does my daughter have to be if she's a soccer player? Is it good enough for her to make the travel team? Is it good enough for her to be a starter on her team? Is it good enough for her to, be, to, to receive all-state honors? Or does she have to get a scholarship, a free ride to a D1 school? Does she have to be good enough to be able to try out for the Olympic team? Does she have to actually make the Olympic team? Does she have to, you know, and, and on and on. And we think of the same things in our lives as well. We live in an area, we live in a society where we set these super high goals for ourselves and for our kids. And in some sense, there's nothing wrong with that because if we want to improve, we need to have goals and we need to strive and we need to try to reach them. But when we think about our relationship with God, 
we keep coming back to that question, how good is good enough? Because realistically speaking, I'm never going to be perfect. And if I'm not perfect, there's always this nagging feeling. There's always this nagging sense of guilt that I'm falling short and this worry, this fear that maybe in the last day, God is going to reject me because I did one too few good deeds. And the solution, I think, is found in the next couple of verses in the next chapter of 1 John. 1 John chapter 2. John writes, he says, My dear children, I write this to you so that you will not sin. He doesn't want us to sin. But, realistically speaking, if anybody does sin, we have an advocate with the Father. Jesus Christ, the righteous one. He's the atoning sacrifice for our sins, and not for ours only, but for the sins of the whole world. What John is saying is that God never says anywhere that we have to be good enough to earn his favor. We don't have to be good enough to earn his love. We don't have to do enough good and right things in order to have a right relationship with God. Yes, he doesn't want us to sin. John says, I write these things so that you won't sin. He's trying to motivate us to live good, upright, moral lives. But realistically speaking, we're never going to be perfect. And so when we do sin, when we do fall short, when we don't live up to the standard, we don't need to worry that God is going to reject us, that, that he's not going to love us, because that's why he sent his son, Jesus, to be the sacrifice for us, to pay the price for our sin, to do what it takes so that we could have a right relationship with God. And that's true whether you're someone who is just hearing this message for the first time and you're saying to yourself, what does it take to begin a right relationship with God? And it's also true if you've been a follower of Jesus for 10, 15, 20, 30, 40, 50 years, there's always that question about how is my relationship with God and am I living in the right way? Am I doing enough good things? Am I reading my Bible enough? Am I praying enough? Am I going to church enough? And on and on and on and all those things. And John is saying, no, it's not a question of whether you're good enough. It's not a question of whether or not we're good enough. It's a question of whether Jesus is good enough because he's the one who has enabled us to have a right relationship with God. So our relationship with God doesn't depend on what we do. It depends on what Jesus has done. It doesn't depend on our behavior. It depends on God's love because that's the kind of God that he is. And what's so interesting about this is he's already pointed this out in a couple of verses back in chapter one. In verse seven, he says, if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, purifies us from all sin. If walking in the light means living a good, upright, perfect, moral life, then why would I need to be purified from sin? If, if having a right relationship with God means living a perfect life, then why would God have sent his son to die in my place so that I could be cleansed? from my sin. John's saying, no, the standard, yeah, you should try to live a perfect life, but you're going to fall short. And when you do, Jesus is there and he cleanses and he forgives us 
from our sins. Verse 9, he says, if we confess our sins, he's faithful, he's just, he'll forgive us our sins and he'll purify us from all unrighteousness. Jesus effectively is saying, come to me, I'll show you your sin. I'll show you where you're falling short. I'll show you where you're not living up to the standard. And then confess, agree with me. I already know what you've done, Jesus says. Just agree with me and say, yes, Lord, you're right. I did that wrong. I failed to do that right thing. I've fallen short yet again and again and again. Will you forgive me? And Jesus says, absolutely, absolutely, I'll forgive you. And after that, then we can talk about how you need to change your behavior. He, said, he, he doesn't say you have to change your behavior in order to have a, have a right relationship with me. He says, once you've got a right relationship with me, then we'll talk about how your behavior can change. And that's so much of what the rest of the letter that John writes in 1 John is about. Our relationship with God follows our behavior. We think we need to behave in order to belong but Jesus says it's the other way around. So rather than trying harder to please God, John says, no, it's not about trying hard enough to be good enough. It's about coming to him and saying, Lord, show me where I'm not good enough. Agreeing with him, confessing, you're right, I'm wrong, I fall short. I need you, Lord, every hour I need you. Would you please forgive me? Would you please restore me to a right relationship with you? My relationship with God is not based on what I do. It's based on what Christ has done. And as a result of that, I can celebrate because I can be 100% assured that no matter what I do, if I'm looking to Him, if I'm trusting Him, if I'm keeping short accounts with him, if I'm coming to him and saying, show me where I fall short, please forgive me. I can be 100% assured that he loves me. And I wanna give you uh, a couple of suggestions that have been very helpful to me and I think they'll be helpful for you in terms of how do I put this into practice in my life today and really every day? What can I do to put this into practice. Let me suggest to you that every night before you go to bed, at least this week, if not making it a, a lifetime habit, every night before you go to bed, take about two, three, four, five minutes and do three things. First, come to the light. Come to the light. Ask Jesus to show you your sin. His goal isn't to make you feel guilty, it's to help you. He wants you to draw closer to him. He doesn't want you to run away from him. And we as human beings don't like it when people point out our sin to us. They, we don't like it when they show us our flaws. I'm okay when my golf instructor says you're sliding your hips, your hips instead of rotating them, but I have a whole lot more difficulty when one of you tells me the problem with your life is that you think that everything revolves around you and not around God or not around other people. It's a lot easier to accept it when it's talking about my sports behavior or my kids' grades at school than when it's talking about my character flaws. Yet Christ loves me so much that he was willing to die for me. So when he's pointing out our flaws, when he's showing us 
where we fall short. It's not because he's trying to condemn us. It's because he's trying to help us. So we need to come to the light and ask him to show us our sin. Verse 7, if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, purifies us from all sin. Great prayer in Psalm 139, written by Israel's King David. Search me, God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there's any offensive way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. You want to memorize a couple of verses in the Bible and use them as a prayer? Psalm 139, verses 23 and 24. Lord, pray this before you go to bed. Lord, search me, know me, show me where I fall short and show me how you want me to live. So first, come to the light. Secondly, confess your sins. Be honest with yourself. Be honest with God. He already knows our sin. We can't hide it from Him, so confess it. Agree with Him. John writes, he says, if we confess our sins, He's faithful, He's just, He'll forgive us our sins, He'll purify us from all unrighteousness. All we have to do is agree with Him that we've sinned, ask Him to forgive us. We don't have to be good enough. We don't have to do enough good deeds to overcome our sins. We just have to be honest with him. No excuses. No, well, she did this or he did that, and so I responded poorly. None of that. Just simply coming to God and saying, you're right, I'm wrong. Will you forgive me? One of my favorite authors, Corey Ten Boom, puts it this way. She says, the blood of Jesus never cleansed an excuse. Blood of Jesus never cleansed an excuse. I don't need to make excuses with God. Because I know beyond a shadow of a doubt that he loves me and he has my best interests at heart. God already knows where I fall short and he's already done something about it. So what I need to do is simply appropriate that and enjoy it and ultimately to celebrate it. And that's the last step. So after I've come to the light and said, Lord, show me my sin, after I've confessed him and said, you're right, I was wrong in this way. I spoke harshly. I was unkind. I failed to do this thing that I knew I should have done to help this other person. And, and on and on and on, after I've confessed that sin, then celebrate. Celebrate our relationship with God. John says, I write this to you so that you won't sin, but if anybody does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. I don't have to be worried that God is going to reject me. I don't have to be worried that he's going to turn me away. I don't have to be worried that I haven't done enough good to earn or to maintain the love that he has for me because his love for me is not dependent on who I am or what I've done. It's dependent on who he is and what his son has done. And that, that's a cause for celebration. So rather than being frustrated or guilty or ashamed or discouraged that I can't live up to the standard. Rather than worrying that I'll never be good enough for God to love me, for God to accept me, for God to care about me. Instead, recognize, realistically speaking, though he doesn't want me to sin, I am going to fall short. And when I do, I need to confess, Lord, I did it yet again. But I thank you that yet again, you will forgive me 
because of what Jesus has done. And then ask him to help you to celebrate, to be excited, to be encouraged, and to praise him for the incredible blessing and the incredible gift that he's given you. Let's pray. Father, I thank you. I thank you that you're a God of love. I thank you that you're a God of grace. I thank you that you're a God of forgiveness. I thank you that you don't lower the standard. I thank you that you want us to live perfect and holy and righteous and good and morally upright lives and that you don't lower that standard. But I thank you that recognizing that we can't, that we'll never be able to meet that standard, that you met it for us in the person of your son, Jesus Christ. And so, Father, I pray that rather than hiding from you, rather than heading off to the darkness when we sin, pray that we would run to you, that we would come to the light, that you would show us where we fall short, that we would not hesitate for one second to confess our sin to you. And that when we do, I pray that we would immediately know the love and the grace and the forgiveness that you have for us in Jesus Christ. And then I pray that as we enjoy that, I pray that we would celebrate. I pray that we would praise you because that's the kind of God who you are. And I pray that we would tell others about the incredible love that you have for us. And as they see in us the joy that comes from knowing beyond a shadow of a doubt that we are forgiven, that we are accepted, that we are loved, I pray that as others see that in us, they would be drawn ultimately to you. And I pray that they would find that same love and grace and forgiveness in Jesus Christ. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen. Hey, thanks for coming out this morning, and I hope you enjoy this beautiful day.